One of the things that I've enjoyed with, with LSD is what I call um, search and conquer missions. I go inside and I search for fear. What am I afraid of in this world? What can I find out about what I'm afraid of? And then I look, I take on the fears one at a time and look for ways to heal it and to teach myself to be unafraid. And so by doing that and addressing the fears and looking for them, I can get a sense of mastery. You are listening to a Mosley Learning Podcast. So welcome to Mosley Learning Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Richard Louis Miller. Dr. Richard Louis Miller is an American clinical psychologist with over 60 years experience. He is the founder of both the Wilbur Hot Springs Health Sanctuary and the nationally acclaimed Cocanders Alcohol and Drug Program. Here during the 1980s, he helped detoxify over 1,500 people, none of whom were medicated or hospitalized during their treatment. Dr. Miller is also the author of the book Psychedelic Medicine, where he interviews world-famous experts on the therapeutic effects of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. On top of this, he is also currently a broadcaster who hosts the Mind, Body, Health and Politics radio program in the US. The program features national figures from the world of medicine, psychology and politics. Welcome to Maudsley Learning Podcast, Dr. Miller, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm hoping today we can talk a little bit about your life experience, expert knowledge, as well as covering some of the topics discussed in your book around psychedelic medicine and the war on drugs. I wanted to start, however, by asking you, how did you find yourself where you are today? Where did it all begin? And what inspired you to dedicate your life to psychology, healing, teaching, and everything else that you've achieved in your lifetime? Well, <laughs> I think it, it, it all began with me going to a, a national conference of the American Psychological Association in Washington, D.C in uh, 1966 and um, uh, there were about a thousand of us in the audience and up on the stage were four uh, luminaries in psychology uh, one of them uh, was uh, albert ellis and while he's uh, you know he had over 300 publications he started rational emotive therapy and um al is talking and uh, there's this man sitting there with a long gray beard and long white hair wearing a jumpsuit uh, like the kind men wear when they wash your car at service stations. It was quite interesting. And as Al is talking, this man is going, ah, ah, and he keeps doing it louder and louder. Ah. And Al looks over to him and says, Fritz, what are you doing? And, and, and the old man says to him, Al, you sound like a drone. You're putting the audience to sleep. You have brilliant things to say, but the way you say them with this monotone on and on. And I see, he says, look at the audience there. They're falling asleep there. So I'd never heard anything like that at a, at a professional conference where a man commented instead of just on the words, which is what mostly we talked about, you know, what the man is saying, he was commenting on the process, on his tone of voice. I was quite taken with that. 
So at the break, I went after the man, the old man, and, and he went in the bathroom. I followed him into the bathroom and I introduced myself and I told him that I'd like to uh, study with him. And in, in, in a thick uh, European accent, he said something about and it turns out he was saying, come to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. All right. Three months later, on my Christmas break from teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I got on a plane and I flew out to the Esalen Institute and I took two uh, week seminars with Fritz Perls, a psychiatrist and founder of Gestalt Therapy. And uh, that was life changing. So I talked to uh, uh, Dick Price, who was one of the founders of uh, Esalen with, uh, with Michael Murphy, about coming back out. And they said I could come out and be a resident scholar. I was their first resident scholar in the summer of 1967. So when school ended in April at Michigan and I had four months off, I got in my Volkswagen and, uh, and I drove to California. And uh, there was a Western Psychological Association meeting happening uh, as I was getting to California. And I went to it. And there I met George Bach. And George Bach was the founder of uh, something called Marathon Group Therapy, where we did 24-hour sessions nonstop. Wow. And uh, uh, George, yes, and George was leading a demonstration, and and, uh, and 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 somehow I met him just for luck, and he said, "Come to this this room where I'm doing a bunch of groups, and you can lead one," because I'd been trained to do group therapy in graduate school and in my early days there. So I went in and I worked with George and he, he saw me work and he really liked my work. Mind you, I'm in my 20s and these are all older men and senior people well published in the field. So George comes over to me and he says, this weekend I'm going to be at Essel and leading a marathon group therapy. Uh, maybe I'd like you to come and be my assistant. And I said, well, I'm headed for Essel and I'm staying there for, the, for four months. I'll definitely be there. So I went to Essel he pulled me right in. I led a marathon group therapy my first weekend at Esalen, and my life was starting to change and unfold. And I moved to Esalen, and I started studying with, with Fritz, with Virginia Satir, the founder of, uh, of Family Therapy, an esteemed person and a wonderful person. I studied with George Bach, and uh, John Lilly was there, and uh, Abe Maslow dropped in. It was quite a summer. It was the summer of love. I, I even went to the famous uh, Monterey Jazz Festival uh, that, that summer. But what I'm leading up to is during that summer, my friend Lionel Bloom, who was working on a PhD at Columbia, who had gone to Paris to do some study at the Sorbonne, he flew over from Paris to visit me at Esalen, and he brought LSD with him. So uh, he gave me some at Esalen, and, uh, and I took it, and I had a, uh, a, a mind-altering uh, uh, situation. And now, I had taken it once before as a graduate student because there was a lot of interplay between Michigan and Harvard, and Leary and Alpert, of course, were doing their early work there. So I had read in their Tibetan Book of the Dead, this is in the 1960s, uh, that if you ate 400 morning glory seeds, a certain kind, heavenly blue or pearly gates, you'd have a full psychedelic experience. 
So I did with a colleague, with, a, with another graduate student, we ate 400 morning glory seeds. Not very easy, by the way, to swallow 400 <laughs> morning glory seeds. Uh, but we did. And we had a major psychedelic experience. So that one combined with the one at Esalen, uh, those were life-changing experiences, along with living at Esalen and studying with these luminaries. So that's how the whole thing got kicked off. Then one other thing happened, which is related to, you, to where you are working. So I encountered the esteemed psychiatrist, Ronnie Lang, R.D. Lang, who was working at Maudsley and who had come up with this concept of the therapeutic milieu and the therapeutic community. As and I mentioned to you before the broadcast, that the therapeutic community was as a situation where you built a milieu, an environment, that was extremely safe, supporting, and facilitating of personal growth. And you brought people to live in this environment in which they could do inner work, perhaps not without even the need for people like ourselves who specialize in treating them, but by going doing inner work themselves. So I was influenced by Ronnie and um, I went out after that, and uh, in, I, I purchased an ancient uh, hot springs in California called Wilbur Hot Springs. It had opened in 1865, uh, and, but had, had been in disrepair, so I was able to afford to buy it uh, for a very small amount of money, which was all I had at the time. And, um, and I created <clears throat> what I called a health sanctuary and which is running to this day 50 years later. And I attempted to build the environment as a, a, a therapeutic milieu. And I brought people there to be part of the therapeutic community. And I'll give you a few examples of, of what a therapeutic milieu. First of all, the staff in a therapeutic environment all have to be trained to be open and loving to be coming from their hearts when they relate to the people who come there. So heart first and head second. Uh, uh, this is another story we'll talk about. Jefferson, Jeff, Thomas Jefferson wrote a little, great little book called uh, A Talk Between the Heart and the Head. Um, so you, the, the staff have to be carefully trained and, and that's very important. And then the environment itself needs to be pristine in nature, because nature in itself is healing. And of course, the trees are healing because they give off oxygen, whereas cement in the city does not give off oxygen. And a few examples. Uh, when guests come to this Wilbur, the health sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs, there are no locks on any of the doors. So you can't lock anything up. That means your valuables are exposed. In 50 years of operating this place, there's never been a theft. And now that includes, you mentioned in the introducing me that I founded something called Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. And I, in one end that we published, I treated 1500 people. Mm. I detoxed all 1500 of those people from heroin, cocaine, and alcohol at Wilbur Hot Springs. I never medicated one of them. I used the hot mineral water as part of the detox. 
of equal interest and importance is that many of these people were hardcore chemically dependent people who were known for at times stealing, you know, certainly people, you know, with, with, with cocaine uh, uh, get into stealing. 1,500 of them lived at Wilbur Hot Springs in a 10-year period. They had no locks on the doors. Some of them were cocaine dealers with rolls of hundreds and, you know, bling, diamond rings and stuff. They never, ever, not one of those 1,500 people ever stole from each other. They never went into each other's rooms and took something. That's because the environment, that therapeutic milieu is so powerful that people feel it as soon as they are in it and they act accordingly. It actually changes their consciousness to live in this because it's ultimately safe. There is nothing in the environment except, well, in the summer, rattlesnakes. That's something to fear. But in terms of human interaction, there's nothing to fear. And so the, 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 it changes the mood and the consciousness immediately. But I get ahead of myself because your original question was, you know, how did this all begin? So I gave you a little thumbnail sketch of how it all began, starting with that. Uh, start, it really started with taking the, the morning glory seeds and then, of course, meeting Fritz Perls in Washington and going to Esalen. That's perfect, because my next question was going to, to ask you about Wilbur Hot Springs. I'm, I'm fascinated to understand how you managed to detoxify these people. Like, what, what kind of schedule was, was their day-to-day -day like? What, how did you do it? Ah, that's a great question about the schedule. So when I researched drug treatment in the United States, what I discovered was that it consisted mostly of 28-day programs in the hospital and... The first thing I thought was, how is it that a, a, an illness called chemical dependence gets treated with exactly 28 days around the whole United States? I never heard of an illness where you knew exactly how many days every uh, hundred, tens of thousands of patients would require. It's, it, it, there was something odd about that. You know, how, how do they know it wasn't for some 24 days and for others, 36 days. How did the whole country get lockstep 28 days? So I did a little research and I found out that a deal was made between these hospital corporations and insurance companies, and they made an agreement on 28 days so that the treatment was based on economics. It wasn't based on patient need. Then I started to wonder, why do they need such lengthy hospitalizations to begin with? A detox doesn't take that. You can detox off a cocaine in 72 hours, you know, and the same for alcohol, a social model detox. So I thought something is, is, is off here, and I think it's politically and economically motivated. So I did some pilot studies, and then I launched the program. And the, and the program that I designed was a five-day residential experience and instead of taking them to the hospital for the five days i took them to the health sanctuary at wilbur hot springs a therapeutic milieu i brought my treatment staff up there i brought all the patients up there closed the place to the public and we had a treatment program now your question was what did they what did we do well instead of sitting around in the hospital for 28 days and shooting pool and watching television and sneaking out at night and going to the local bar 
which was what was happening around the country. I know that as well. Wilbur Hot Springs is 22 miles from the nearest town. Nobody's sneaking out and going down the street to get a drink. So instead of sitting around and, and shooting pool and, and watching TV and going to AA meetings, we had a schedule that started at 7 o'clock in the morning and went till 11 o'clock at night, and they were busy for every one of those 16 hours. We taught them about nutrition in the nutrition classes because their, their nutrition was terrible, of course. They're, no, they're famous for that. But, in, but instead of calling it nutrition, which would scare the average chemically dependent person, they don't want to learn about nutrition, we called it fuel. And the fuel they can, they can relate to because, because fuel is something they put in their cars. So we would teach them about how the body needs fuel, and they were interested in learning about fuel. We taught them about the value of aerobic exercise on, on, uh, on health, on heart conditioning, and on the emotions. Because aerobic exercise, if done consistently for 60 minutes at a, at a rate of between 60 and 80% of max heart, uh, leads to an emotional uplift that lasts for seven and a half or eight hours. That research was done by Indiana University uh, way back a long time ago. So we taught them about that. We taught them about meditation, but of course we couldn't call it meditation because that's something that some guru does up in the Himalayas sitting in a loincloth. So we called it mind clearing. They love to learn about mind clearing. They wouldn't have wanted to learn about meditation. So by reframing treatment and giving it names that were palatable to a rough and tumble group of alcohol, not necessarily all rough and tumble, some were executives, but of alcoholics and cocaine addicts and, and heroin addicts, by reframing the names of, of what we were doing, right, aerobics being called just to exercise. Oh, we taught them yoga. They, they, they weren't about to do yoga. Again, yoga was, again, that thing that you do up in the mountains in, in the Himalayas. But we called it stretching class because we taught them how the muscles are like rubber bands that connect these things called bones. And when the rubber bands get tight, we feel gnarly and, 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 and uncomfortable. But if you keep your rubber bands loose, you're going to feel much more comfortable. Well, they love stretching those rubber bands, so we called it stretching. And, and so on. Then there was group therapy every day. I personally led six hours of group therapy every single day for that entire week. So they had six times five days, they had 30 hours of group therapy. I also had a personal session with every single one of them during the week. I worked long hours. And, <laughs> and um, so they had individual therapy, they had group therapy, they had mind clearing, meditation, they had stretching, yoga, they had nutrition training, fuel, you know, and, and more. And then of course they utilized the hot mineral springs, these amazing medicinal springs to help with any kind of physical discomfort associated with withdrawal. Uh, the ones who, and by the way, most of the withdrawal is, it comes from what you see in the movies from some old movie with Frank Sinatra, the man with the golden arm, and our whole United States learned to believe that if you withdraw from heroin, it was like going through the, 
the, the corridors of hell. It's not, the, it's not the case. It can be uncomfortable, but it's nothing like that. And you dip these people in hot medicine water when they're feeling a little, you know, bony, uh, uncomfortable. It worked out perfectly. And then my colleague said, oh, my God, you're taking these people to a hot springs instead of a hotel. They're alcoholics. You're going to have these blood pressure spikes. You know, you're going to have all kinds of stuff. You'll have trouble. 1,500 people, I published it. I never had to bring one of them out of the hot springs to a hospital. I had helicopter backup at all times. I never had to helicopter anyone out of there. That's amazing. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. And they came with all kinds of profundity of, of uh, you know, these are people drinking a quart of vodka a day and a, uh, three and a half grams of an eight ball, it's called, of cocaine a day. You know, these were very serious uh, chemically dependent people, or they wouldn't have been coming out to the middle of nowhere for treatment. And so uh, uh, that was the program you know, that you asked, you know, about what we did. That's what we did. We worked hard. Yeah. Then, following the five-day residential treatment, they left with a plan, a written plan that I gave them. And the plan included weekly individual and group therapy for a year and a half outpatient plus continuation of their stretching class, nutritional awareness, and aerobic conditioning, which was monitored by their individual therapist. If during the year and a half they had a relapse, then they would come back for an additional five days. So instead of sending them for 28 days and charging them a huge amount of money for 28 days, they took it in five-day chunks, which is much less expensive. And of course, taking them to a health sanctuary to hot springs was remarkably less expensive than time in a hospital. So the cost of the entire year and a half program was significantly less than just 28 days in a hospital. And the other thing I found out about the 28-day programs in our country is that after the 28 days, there was virtually nothing. They were left to go off the side of a cliff. So we have people flying to this famous Betty Ford Center in Palm Springs, California, do their 28 days like Elizabeth Taylor, the famous actress, did. Then they get on a plane and fly home to begin with. The, the stewardesses on the plane try to give them alcohol. Mm. May I offer you coffee, tea, milk, or a drink? Mm. So some of them are drinking the first day out. When they get back to their homes around the country, they don't have a therapist. They don't have nothing. They're sent to AA meetings. Yeah. So, of course, the recidivism rate was 97%. Yeah. But when you left our program and got on a plane and went back to New York City, we had our therapist waiting for them in New York City if they flied home, flew home on the weekend, Monday morning, they'd be seeing that therapist. You have to keep the distance between the end of a residential and the beginning of outpatient mm. very brief. The longer that distance is, the more opportunity for the patient to fall in a hole and start using again, including on the plane. If you don't teach them what to do on the plane, they're going to start, the alcoholics will be drinking on that plane when they get home. Makes complete sense. So, yeah. you know, we, we accounted for that. And uh, our, we published the results. Our, our success rate was remarkable. It was the highest in the country. But, but again, I want, to, I want to emphasize 
is two things. The continuation of the residential without patient over a period of a year or a year and a half and keeping a very small time frame between when they leave the residential experience and when they start their outpatient. Those are two critical variables. It makes complete sense. Yeah, I mean, you won't find a bigger advocate than me for all the different sorts of interventions you described, the exercise, meditation, yoga people, people listen to this podcast will know. But uh, I'm so surprised. So in terms of the alcohol withdrawal, did you not require any kind of medical intervention like benzodiazepines, nothing along those lines? I did not use one benzodiazepine. Now, when people came from distant places, I tried my best to have them vetted by a medical doctor in terms of you know, what they might bring. So for example, if a person was morbidly obese, that could create a problem. A morbidly obese person who was alcoholic getting into hot water, you know, we could have a blood pressure you know, issue. And so you know, we, we tried. And we had one case out of 1,500 of a person who slipped through. And this was, uh, this was a, um, an actress from Israel. And I, I actually personally talked to her therapist and he assured me that her drugs were uh, alcohol and cocaine, and mostly cocaine. So she flew over, and uh, on, the, sec on the, the end of the first day, or beginning, I guess it was the second morning, uh, I was called and told that, uh, that someone was laying on the floor in the kitchen convulsing. And so I ran there and found her, and she was the actress, and she was laying on the floor you know, having a, a mild, uh, you know, convulsions. And so I, I took a, a, a salad spoon made of wood and I put it in her mouth and to keep her tongue down and keep her breathing. And, uh, and, and that was, uh, as I did so, I knocked out her front tooth and I felt, oh my God, what did I just do? This is a world famous Israeli actress and I just knocked her front tooth out this is going to be the worst thing in the world. This is going to make the papers. I'm, I'm oh God, I felt terrible. So I, I, I did the thing with the salad, uh, uh, a spoon, you know, she resolved very quickly, got breathing and she sat up and, and, uh, and she was got aware of what happened and, and, and thanked me. And, and, and I apologized uh, profusely for the tooth. And she laughed and I said, what are you laughing at? She said, oh, it's just a cap. I'm having tooth work. I can just push that right back into place. It's no problem. <laughs> and I was, I breathed a big sigh of relief. Then I found out what it was about. The doctor had missed something. She had been using diazepam. And so what we were dealing with was it was a benzodiazepine withdrawal. And that does happen and you have to be ready for it. And so she, that was a rare case, but you have to be ready. And, uh, and but that was the only one. Uh, no issue, surprisingly, isn't it? With these out, with the alcoholics, with the blood pressure issue. Uh, you know, some of them did spike for a day and they went up, you know, 160 over 95, 100. And then after a day it was gone. The, her the biggest problem with withdrawal, if, not a problem, but the biggest sort of, um, uh, a, comp a, a, a complaint 
from the patient about, about discomfort of all 1,500 was a person who was addicted to Coca-Cola. And he went through a Coca-Cola sugar withdrawal that gave him huge headaches. And the headaches, he complained and whined and screamed about the headaches. I mean, he was also a cocaine and alcoholic user, but he didn't complain about the coke and the alcohol. But the headaches from, it was caffeine withdrawal, by the way, you know, that's what it was. And I learned something very important. That was 30 years ago, this went on. I learned something very important that caffeine withdrawal can be for some people very severe in terms of the nature of the headaches. That sounds so interesting. Thank you so much for explaining that. I thought we'd turn a little bit more to talk about the psychedelics because I've just finished your book, which was fascinating and recording. So I can show your book here, Psychedelic Medicine, released in 2017. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I thought we'd start by talking about LSD as that's the first drug you cover. And I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind explaining the history behind LSD, because I found it really interesting. It wasn't something I knew about, how it was discovered, um, and kind of a bit about the history, about what happened when it was discovered. Well, yes, it was, it was discovered by uh, the Swiss scientist, uh, Albert Hoffman, of course, who was working at Sandoz. And, uh, and he discovered it, I believe, in around 1938. But, but then uh, nothing happened with it, and, and it was in a vial and so on. And then he was doing some research uh, in, in 1943, and, uh, and he took what he thought was a tiny amount of it in terms of micrograms. And then what happened was the famous, what's been known as the famous bicycle ride. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's even a day now that's celebrated called Bicycle Day. <laughs> and, and so when he got on his bike, you know, having taken this LSD, he had a very unusual ride. And he got home and he had a, an extremely unusual experience. In fact, uh, he called the doctor and uh, he was given milk as a possible antidote, as I recall. But from that, that, I mean, that was the genesis. Then he gave some LSD to some of his colleagues at Sandoz. Then they sent some LSD around to scientists around the world. And it, it, then, then the, the, the attention of the scientists started to, to grow. At the same time, the United States government, bless the hearts of the CIA, got involved with a project called MK Ultra, and your listeners can look that up and find it easily. And what they did was for, for, uh, for 20 years, uh, the United States government used LSD experimentally on American citizens, many of whom did not know what they were being given, and many of whom were being observed through one-way mirrors and glass uh, during the experience. And and they they did outlandish things. They they did things like put put people in a room, gave them LSD, and brought in prostitutes, and then they filmed what they did. They were supposedly looking for a truth serum and thinking that LSD would be a truth serum. 
but they, uh, it was an outrageous kind of experiment and, and, and not much different from the famous experiment that was done in the South, giving syphilis to black men, uh, which is also a well-known, uh, quote, undercover government experiment on people. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we point the finger at the atrocities of the Nazis doing eugenics and various other experiments on human people, which they did. But uh, we, we don't uh, look that hard at ourselves in, in the United States for doing similar kinds of things to citizens. And that's really something that needs to be uh, more carefully examined, exposed and, and corrected. There's another study in New York, isn't there, about hepatitis, the boys with hepatitis. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not maybe. familiar with that one. You might send me a link. I, I'd like to know about it. Because it, it's situations like this, MK Ultra, and, and, the, and the study, there's an, a name of the, that was been given to the study in the South with the black men in syphilis. I wish I could think of it. And the difficulty with doing that is that it undermines trust. And now, years later, we have a mess going on in the United States. It's a real mess here because a significant number of people, a very significant number of people don't trust the government and maybe rightfully so because the government has shown itself to be untrustworthy and don't trust the media to be journalists because instead of being journalists and reporting what they see, they have mixed in their opinions and they've mixed in their opinions so forcefully that you can't tell what's news and what's opinion. And so we have a real problem and it's a problem that's a different kind of a problem than I think we've ever had before in this country. And certainly we've had our problems, but this is a different kind of a, a problem because this is a psychological one. And so it's getting played out in ways that's costing lives. For example, we now supposedly have a vaccine to treat COVID-19 with a certain amount of protection against the Delta variant. We have a significant number of people in this country who are either declining or actively resisting the vaccine because some of them don't trust the vaccine. Now, this has been true historically going back to the American Revolution because we had a smallpox epidemic during the revolution and there were people then who didn't trust vaccines because vaccines are very, very scary to a lot of folks. I mean, what you're basically telling them is, we're gonna give you a little tiny amount of this disease in order for you to not to get the disease. And that's, that, that can be frightening if you don't sort of have a theoretical, scientific, or some kind of foundation on which, on which, to, understand, on which to understand that. So it's not as if this group right now of decliners are anything new. We've had them for hundreds of years. It's that we have also had experiences in this country where we provided vaccines which have done remarkably well and saved thousands, if not millions of lives. The polio vaccine, 
the measles vaccine, right? We have successful vaccines where everybody takes it and everybody benefits. Now we have a situation where the people are, again, they're either mistrustful of the government or they're mistrustful of vaccine or they're mistrustful. They're living in fear. There's a lot of fear here right now. And that's being driven socioeconomically, which we can talk about. Well, when people are in fear and then you have a, a pandemic and a, a hopeful cure and they don't know whether to believe the cure or not, you've got the makings of a real messy situation. And my scientist friends are telling me that the big problem with the decliners of the vaccine is they themselves become a virulent test tube because to the extent that they continue to get the virus, they're giving the virus which needs to be transmitted in order to live. It doesn't live in absentia and it doesn't live on the table. It has to live by being communicated from one person to another. That's its lifeblood. By these folks as a group not getting vaccinated and catching the virus, they are giving the virus an opportunity to spread to, to them, which then gives the virus, and this is the key here, this then gives the virus time to mutate. And that is the key problem with the non-vaxxers, that they are creating an environment that allows for mutations. So then the, the virus might get to the point where it will be one step ahead of the vaccine makers. Right now, we're sort of keeping our fingers crossed in some way that the COVID-19 mRNA virus, uh, vaccine will also handle Delta. But will it, handle, will it handle Gamma? Will it handle Lu? Will it handle the variants that are coming if this group of resistors keeps providing a virulent test tube of their bodies for the virus to mutate? And we started this based on talking about trust, right? And so you can see how undermining trust then gets into the health profession and, and the vaccine uh, delivery system. Trust is, is so important in keeping a culture of, of organized and healthy and focused mm. and happening. And, and we have the undermining of that. We had a terrible situation here for four years where we had a president who for four solid years undermined trust in everything. I mean, he really, in everything. And you look at it in every direction. He undermined people's trust in each other at a very basic level. It was the most divisive human being that we've ever had in the presidency. And it's, it's created huge problems, which we're going to be dealing with for I don't know how long into the future. It's interesting what you mentioned about the media and the government and trust, because I have to say, before before I read your book, I genuinely didn't appreciate or I, d I didn't really think about the positives that we could gain from psychedelic assisted therapy. And, and that's coming from me and I'm a trainee psychiatrist and, and you'd think that I'd, I'd understand. But I suppose I live in a country where I was brought up and told drugs are bad. And, and that was kind of all I knew. And since reading your book, it has definitely widened my understanding 
about how they could be used in a positive way. So I, I wanted to ask you, because you touch on it, how can we use LSD in a positive way in, in psychiatry and mental health? Well, to begin with, you were misled to believe that drugs were bad. Drugs aren't bad. There's nothing bad in nature. It's the way we use something that can cause harm that you might call bad or deleterious. But it's not the material itself because all of these things have some place in medicine. And there's a huge difference between a drug and a medicine in that we refer to something as a drug when it's something you buy off the street and you take it and it has some kind of effect on your psyche. But that very same substance can be used as a medicine if it's used properly with the proper protocol and the proper guidance and supervision. And so cocaine, for example, had its early use by Sigmund Freud, who was an ophthalmologist and used it as anesthesia in ophthalmological uh, operations. And it was also used in this country in the 19th century, put into the body to block transmission of pain. And they thought it could be used for anesthesia. To this, to this very day, a variant called lidocaine is used in all dental procedures. But when you, you take the same substance and stick it in your nose on the street, and it might be cocaine, and it might have who knows what else in there, talcum powder, whatever else they cut it with, and you've got a drug, which is something that is very addictive and can cause a lot of difficulty. But the government, instead of explaining it to people this way, in a rational way, and in an educational way, just tar it all with one big, large brush of disgusting tar and say, drugs are bad. And then the United States government under the alcoholic president, Richard Nixon, declares a war on drugs. Well, a war on drugs means you'd be getting piles of cocaine and heroin and shooting them with, shooting the substance with guns. That's a war on, on drugs, right? You get marijuana fields, you get out there with a bazooka and you'd shoot the marijuana. That's a war on drugs. What we have instead is we have a war on people. So now for 50 years in our country, we have had the saddest situation where we've got a government attacking people for ingesting materials that change their consciousness. And we've put millions in jail and, and, and reprehensibly, a very high percentage of those people are people of color because this whole drug war started by this, as I pointed out, alcoholic president was based on racism. Richard Nixon was a racist and he was an anti-Semite. You're a psychiatrist. You should read the things that he said about psychiatrists. And I was reading them recently in his tapes. He thought all psychiatrists were Jewish, were Jewish bastards. He, he couldn't understand why are all psychiatrists these crazy Jewish bastards. I mean, that's the way the man thought. And it was, it was quite something. And so we've had a war on people 
particularly people of color, black people who were put in jail in massive numbers for the use of marijuana, a relatively benign weed that grows in the ground and has an effect on consciousness. Zero research was allowed for the last 50 years because of this Nixonian draconian system that was set up. So instead of learning from our ethno-pharmacologists how something helpful and medicinal could be extracted from these various vegetables, such as the mushroom psilocybin and the, and the, and the, and the weed that has tetrahydrocannabinol in it, we call marijuana, instead of learning how to use them medicinally, science was suppressed and the public was left to use street stuff, which of course they did, because there's no way in any time of recorded history, you can stop a culture from using something if they want to use it. You, you want to make gold, you know, illegal, then people smuggle gold. You want to make diamonds illegal from, from, from Africa, then they smuggle diamonds. You want to make alcohol illegal, such as prohibition in the United States, then they make illegal alcohol and you spawn the mafia. You want to make drugs illegal, marijuana, then people will buy it, and now you have narco-traficante cartels taking over whole countries with the amount of money that they've made because this weed was made illegal. So the collateral damage from these misguided governmental programs has been world-shaking. And I remember reading in your book, it wasn't just the US. I remember you saying you traveled to Israel to try and do research on the drugs and they, they were afraid to allow you to do so because of the relationship, the effect on the relationship that it would have with the US, is that right? The head of the Israeli Supreme Court took me aside and she said to me, Richard, we would love to use MDMA to treat our post-traumatic stress disorder people. We have so many people who have been sitting in, in restaurants and places and all of a sudden they see body parts flying from one of these explosions and we'd love to treat them with MDMA. But if we were to do so, the United States would sanction us financially. And I, was, I felt so badly. Here was the power of the great United States suppressing the use of a, of a country's uh, a use of this medicine experimentally to give their people you know, some kind of uh, healing that, that would otherwise, who knows how long it would take, could be years, could be never. And that was an example to me. It was all based on uh, originally on one man, his name was Harry Anslinger. He was, he was put in charge of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1935. He was appointed by his relative uh, Mellon, uh, who was the, of the Mellon banking family, who was secretary of the treasury in 1935. So he appoints as Harry Anslinger as head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And, and, and Anslinger is a, zealous racist. So he goes on a campaign and, and, and publicizes the fact that black men are using marijuana to seduce white women, scared the bejeebers out of who knows how many millions of people and started arresting black men for the use of marijuana. And that kicked off, that was the early 
1935. Harry Ensling eventually got permission from our government to go to the United Nations and beat the drum against drugs, the ones that you, that, that you referenced and how we started this conversation, taught the drugs were bad. Harry Anslinger got the United Nations to teach the whole world that, quote, drugs were bad. And that was followed eventually by Richard Nixon in 71, declaring, 1971, declaring a war on drugs, which, as I said before, it's very important that people understand there has never been a war on drugs. There has been a war on people. And it had started in 1971 with Nixon. It continues to this very day. Prior, prior to this, you were, I don't know if you'd agree, you, I'd use the word lucky enough, perhaps, um, to use MDMA in therapy yourself. Is that correct, with one of your therapists? Is that right? Well, I was, I was lucky enough, and we ought to talk about luck, because luck is a very big thing in this world. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for good luck. <laughs> Yes, I was given, I was lucky, and, and my therapist, Dr. Robert Cantor in Atherton, California, uh, was able to administer uh, MDMA to me in my personal therapy sessions in the, in the early 1980s. And it was um, nothing short of remarkable, breathtaking, uh, uh, enhancing, uh, melting of my defenses uh, you could almost watch them drip away, and and the opening of my heart, uh, the advances I made in 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 empathy as a person, in in being able to open up more to be empathetic to other people, combining that with what I've learned about resonating to other people uh, with LSD, so the combination of the skill of resonating to another person's energy system and, 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 opening, and lowering my own defenses in order to add to my empathy was, was, uh, was really a, a wonderful for me, uh, both as a person, uh, of course, also as a father and, and a husband, but also with my patients, because it got me to be in places that I'd never been before in terms of... Uh, of uh, social psychological interaction. Uh, so the way it worked was I would show up at his office at nine o'clock in the morning. He'd administer the uh, MDMA by 10 after nine, which was in pill form. Pure MDMA, just to clarify, it was pure. I, I only take laboratory grade pure uh, medicinals. Uh, one of, another problem we have, this is a side issue, is that when people are forced to buy street medicine, they're really buying drugs. They're not buying medicine because medicine by definition has gone through a lot of testing. Mm -hmm. It's gone through peer reviewed journal articles. Hopefully mm -hmm. it's been passed by the FDA. You know, it's had, it's been examined, but when you go out on the street, you're buying something, you have no idea what it is whatsoever. That's dangerous. When you put something in your body and you don't know what it is, that's dangerous in and of itself. So yes, the answer is Dr. Robert Cantor was able to get me reagent um, uh, MDMA, and I trusted him that he could do so. In fact, I knew the scientist who created the MDMA that I took, and I can tell you who he was. It was Dr. 
Sasha Shulgren. Sasha Shulgren made the, the MDMA in his laboratory in Orinda, California. And, uh, you know, he's world famous uh, for his work, uh, Shulgren is. And um, so I would take it at uh, 10 minutes after nine. It would start to take effect in between 30 and 45 minutes, but before 10 o'clock. We would then have a two hour psychotherapy session from 10 until noon. There would then be a post therapy session, sort of integration session, session from, uh, from noon to one. By one o'clock, I was <clears throat> in my car driving back to my office. <clears throat> By two o'clock, I was back in my office. And at three o'clock, I was seeing a patient. So that is, uh, is how the, a day for me, including my, my psychotherapy, my personal therapy with MDA, MDMA went. So I'm telling you the schedule because the schedule itself is very important because it means, and what he taught me was that not only was this an extremely beneficial medicine, but it was a medicine which allowed the patient, namely myself, to be back at work the same day and functioning. That was, that's an important piece of information. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that. A person could be more conservative and say, I'll take the entire day off. That's fine, but they certainly can go back to work the next day. So it's not as if days are getting, you know, pushed out of, out of, out of existence for functioning as a, a result of this medicine. And, and I, showed on, we, I showed on a regular basis that we could do this protocol, take it in the morning, treat me for two hours, et cetera, and that I could drive home safely at one o'clock, very safely. What dose of MDMA did you have? 135 uh, milligrams. And is that typically thought of, can you give us an idea of the range of doses of, of MDMA that one might administer clinically? Yes. It's considered that a standard dose, and it has been considered that a standard dose for, for and again, there's good information about this dosing on a website called Erowid, E-R-O-W-I-D. Uh, but a standard dose, 135 uh, uh, milligrams. Uh, but for a person who's larger in size, uh, you know, one might take, you know, up to 150, but 135 is a standard dose. However, over the years, people have experimented. And remember, all this experimentation has been forced underground because the government doesn't allow research or puts obstacles up for 50 years and suppresses the research. Some, as you know from my book, some people have squeaked through with great perseverance. And that's the, those are the scientists that I have in my book, the, the, these wonderful, courageous scientists who kept pushing the government to allow a little research, a tiny bit of research, you know, Roland Griffiths at, 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 at uh, Johns Hopkins, you know, Dave Nichols at Indiana University. These people were pushing, you know, but it was hard. I mean, the things, 
And the funding as well, I think you mentioned as well. It's not just the legality, it's also the funding is almost impossible. Right on. The funding was so minimal, but these certain people, you know, stuck with it. And, and then there's underground information such as Aerowid, which is no longer underground. It's got a great website in terms of the answer to your question about dosing. So over the years, through experimentation, it's been found that some people get as much benefit on 75 milligrams as taking the whole, this 135. Now, this is very important because both of you are medical doctors, I believe. And so, you know, we, we all agree that the least amount of medicine to get the most benefit is the way we want to go. You know, we don't want to come in with an atom bomb when you can get the job done with a hand grenade. And so, right? And so people are now experimenting with and getting good benefit from 75 milligrams. But not everyone. It seems to be a lot of individual variation. Then there's a second part of this in answer to your question about dosing, which is the booster. Now, the booster is an amount of the medicine that one takes about an hour and a half or two hours after the initial administration. And what it does is it extends the experience. And for a booster, typically someone takes 50% of the initial dose. So if they took 130 for their initial uh, administration, then they'll take 65 for the booster. I, I haven't heard much, hardly anything really, about microdosing with MDMA, but we can talk later, if you like, about microdosing with LSD, which I know a great deal about. Yes, please tell us, tell us about that. Dr. Jim Fadiman, who wrote this wonderful book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, uh, which is sort of a recipe book on, on how to take uh, various of these uh, psychedelic medicines. He, he, he has a database of literally thousands of people who are sending him anecdotal information about microdosing. And anecdotal information at a certain level of volume is science, even though it's anecdotal. And so, for example, you know, what I tell people about the medicinal waters at Wilbur Hot Springs Health Sanctuary, people have been taking these waters for 150 years. Even though there's no double-blind study on the water, and, <laughs> and, and even we don't have much hard research, when you have people consistently using something for 150 years, none of them are ending up in the emergency room you know, none of them are ending up in trouble and a very high percentage of them are claiming some form of benefit, then, you know, you have to say there must be something valuable there. Maybe we don't know exactly what it is, but there's something of value. And mm -hmm. so Jim has this anecdotal information about microdosing. Mm. And for your, for your listeners, a, a microdose, by definition, is an amount of medicine that you take that you don't notice whatsoever. And that's what the micro, the micro both means the amount of the medicine, but it also means the amount of 
feeling the, the effect of the medicine itself. And in a microdose, you don't feel anything. If you feel something, then you took more than a microdose by definition, right? So, and I'll tell you more about that, that feeling state. So a microdose is sub-sensation, sub-sensate. And it appears to have an effect. Now I use the word appears because we need more scientific evidence. We need studies on this, in addition to these anecdotal stories, because on the one hand, I'm saying that thousands of stories have meaning, but I'm also aware of the fact that Claire Prophet got 5,000 people to go up on the top of a mountain in the year 2000 because they thought the world was coming to an end. So just because you have a lot of people doing something doesn't mean in and of itself, you know, that you can make mm -hmm. conclusions. What's the theory behind it? What's the scientific theory about how it helps? In terms of the, the mechanism, it has to do with the effect on the neurotransmitters and then what the neurotransmitter change has on the effect of that on our sense of well-being. The subjective report, I think, has been well written about in Ayelet's Wald, Waldman's book, A Really Good Day, where she says it was at the end of the day, this is a woman who was bipolar for 20 years, took everything in the pharmacopoeia that it had to, and no help, and she microdosed and got a, a, a very positive result for her bipolar. And it was at the end of the day, she turned to her husband and said, you know, I just realized I had a really good day. So it was a retrospective report that, okay, you can also get in touch with it during the day. The, the microdose of LSD is referred to colloquially as a brightener. And so that tells you something about the experience that a significant percentage of the people who take it have. They feel a sense of a, of a little brighten, a little uplift. A little things look a little tiny bit sharper and crisper to them. So it makes one think that you could almost classify the microdose as an antidepressant because it, it's, it, it is an uplift. But again, uh, yeah, but again, I'm not making claims. I, what I am claiming is we need research because this may be an extremely powerful antidepressant i was thinking that and and possible for widespread use at a tiny cost with with as far as we know no no side effects as far as we know there are some suspicions about about side effects uh, and so again we need research the suspicion has to do with the possibility that mm -hmm. too frequent use of the microdose can lead to heart valve issues because the microdose connects to something called the 5-HTP1 receptor and that can have an effect on valvular function. So 
right? So that we're already looking for what are the possible side effects of these medicines. Very important. Again, we need research to know more about that. Uh, and that, that, that suspicion came from, you know, the very frequent use. And, and why that's important is that, whereas with LSD, LSD has a self-limiting uh, factor in it. Namely, it's such a large experience. It doesn't lend itself to daily use. It doesn't even hardly lends itself to weekly use. You know, it's very big. It takes eight to 10 hours. People have, you know, integration afterwards, you know, and it's a huge psychological experience. Microdosing is not. It's a tiny, tiny, like subsensate experience. That kind of thing lends itself to people doing it more often. Okay, so then with more often, they're subject to my old slogan, a little tiny bit of something over a long period of time amounts to a lot of something, right? There's no such a thing as, oh, one time it's not gonna kill you. Well, yeah, but one time, a hundred times of a little tiny something is liable to do some damage. So we need to learn more about microdosing, a lot more. Speaking about current research, takes me back to MDMA because actually we're quite we're doing we've progressed quite far with research in MDMA is that right would you agree well if you consider the maps uh, phase four trials with with, uh, with PTSD a lot of research yeah that's what I'm referring to then you're correct but that's you know that's in one area it's with PTSD yeah and it's going to give us a lot of information, but, but we, we really need a, a, a lot more. I mean, you know, we're mm. catching up after 50 years in the desert. Yeah, 50 years of virtually no research at all. 50 years in the desert. I mean, it is just, fun. it's like something you read in the history books of people making fun of Galileo or making fun of, you know, excommunicating him or, you know, you know, throwing stones at people who thought the world was was round. And, and we've gone through a 50-year period like that. And uh, unfortunately, that's been 50 years of my career. I, you know, I say it, you know, in a, in a friendly way because that's my how I am. But I don't feel friendly about this inside. I'll tell you that. I, I'm outraged. I'm outraged. I, this This... This is not a way of treating science in a country that I want to believe in. I, I want to believe in my, that, that in my country, science is allowed, supported, acceptable, and funded, not, not suppressed and, and, and had scientists put in jail. I'm working on another book now, I'm just finishing it, called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. And I'm interviewing prominent psychiatrists, psychologists mm -hmm. from all over the world who have been using psychedelics sub rosa for 40 or 50 years. All these people I'm interviewing are in their 70s and 80s, 190. And their stories are wonderful stories, but some of them are stories of being imprisoned. There's a, a, a wonderful Swiss uh, a physician that I just interviewed, Frederica Meckel Fisher, who was, who was trained by a Swiss psychiatrist 
with permission, special permission from the US, uh, from the Swiss government. He got a special license to train doctors in the use of psychedelics. And she was trained by him. And then when she went out and did training, she was arrested and put into jail. And of course, we have other examples of that as well. And, and um, I, we, we don't really want to stand for that. I don't want to stand for that. Some of the other drugs you talk about in your book, um, psilocybin, um, which is the active ingredient, the active psychedelic ingredient in magic mushrooms. And that's something that's actually been quite a hot topic in the UK as well as the US recently. Can you talk to us a little bit about where we're at in terms of the medicinal uses of that? After MDMA, which of course, as we mentioned before, we're now in the phase four trials, uh, and that's because of the tireless efforts of my dear friend and colleague, Rick, Dr. Rick Doblin, and, uh, and, and the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. You know, yeah, yeah, tireless effort for 30, I've known him for 36 years, and, and he's been, you know, I, I doubt if a day goes by that he doesn't work on this. So, so we've made that progress with MDMA, and I believe that will continue. And Rick thinks it will be uh, a prescription medicine within a couple of years here in this country. And then there should be an explosion of research. And drug companies taking advantage of it, perhaps? Well, the drug companies will take advantage of anything they can possibly take advantage of in order to drive money to the bottom line and give uh, funds to their investors, because, because that's the name of their game. Uh, you know, uh, profits. Uh, and um, the next uh, medicine that's, that's going to be, that has attracted a great deal of attention and, and, uh, and will be researched is, uh, as you mentioned, um, the magic mushroom psilocybin. And that is because primarily of the work of uh, Roland uh, Griffin and uh, Kathleen McLean at Johns uh, Hopkins. And uh, you can find uh, an, uh, an archive of my interview with them on my program that you mentioned, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And of course, they're also in the book, Psychedelic Medicine. So that groundbreaking uh, research that they did at Johns Hopkins with one administration of psilocybin pre-testing the subjects for depression following them for a year and then post-testing them a year later and seeing that there was still a positive effect on depression after one administration of psilocybin. I mean, that had a big effect. And, and, and it, a great deal of that effect is because they're at Johns Hopkins, because Hopkins itself is a world-famous, highly reputed uh, university. And so that has, has had a lot of effect. And now we're seeing in certain areas, more research on psilocybin and companies are springing up and two cities in the United States have legalized uh, Denver, Colorado and Oakland, California have, uh, have made, uh, I think they both worded it as anything that comes out of the ground it, it is no longer illegal. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. When did that happen? Uh, just in the past year or two. 
look it up, Denver, Colorado, and Oakland, California. And so we're going to be seeing an, uh, a rush now, of course, industry, as you mentioned, big pharma, we're going to see a rush of, we're going to be seeing a rush as capital goes into psilocybin sales, probably before we get a lot of research done. They're going to be psilocybin drinks and psilocybin candies and psilocybin sprays and psilocybin mouthwash. You name it, it's going to happen. There's going to be a gold rush. And the same thing is happening with psychedelic science. You know, big money is coming in uh, and faster than the research can be done. So we're, we're in for an exciting time. There, there is a, a, a renaissance going on. I just wanted to highlight what you said as well with this, with the magic mushrooms, is that you can take them once and they have an effect. Some studies have shown up to six months. And I just, I wanted to emphasize that because obviously the medication we have right now, some have to be taken up to three times a day. And, and I just think that's important. It's extremely important what you just said. What, the, what Big Pharma has done is created an annuity system for themselves where the patient has to take a, a medicine, as you say, up to three times a day, certainly once a day, the SSRIs. So you're talking about selling 365 pills to every person every year mm -hmm. compared to taking something once. That is huge. The other thing that's going to be extremely bothersome is that the mushrooms are relatively easy to grow. You know, it's not that easy to make MDMA in your kitchen or LSD. I wouldn't know. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not that complicated, but it's not that easy for the average person and to do it well. But, but to grow the mushrooms is very easy. I've, I've talked to them and, and cheap and cheap. And so given that this spreads and, and that there are protocols, people will be able to make their own medicine in their own homes and then be told by their doctors or read in books exactly how to self-prescribe and be able to, to, to get help. And particularly people who are, if not outside the medical system, are distant from it, namely those with, with less money. But we do have to say, and you mentioned this multiple times in your book, about a safe setting and a safe set, and that's obviously something that needs to be taken into consideration with all the things that we've spoken about. The psychological setting of these, med when you take these medicines, is extremely important. It's not the same as taking any other medicine that we have. Most any other medicine we have, you know, you can take standing up, sitting down on the way to work, or you can take it on the subway, but that's not the case with psychedelics. It is, when I said before, talked before about the difference between the same substance being used as a medicine or used as a drug. Mm -hmm. Part of using psychedelics as a medicine is a deep understanding that where you take it is essential. And where you take it needs to be an ultra, ultra, underlined in bright red, ultra safe place, extremely quiet. You do not want machine noise coming at you while you're under the influence of a psychedelic. 
I understand some people are going to listen to this and say, what is he talking about? I take it and I go to rock shows and I go on the subway. You know, sure, people do all kinds of things <laughs> and, and, and they are able to do it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the proper way to use a medicine. The very fact that people can use it in other ways and, 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 and even use it around somebody using a jackhammer doesn't make that right. It just means it's possible. But there, but there are ways to use it in order to maximize the benefit. And you maximize the benefit of these medicines by having an extremely quiet setting so that your focus can be on your inner life and your body doesn't have to put up shields to block out the extraneous sound. Because when we have sounds coming at us, we literally feel them physically. You're both doctors and you know that. The little waves hit our inner ear and set up a vibration which we decode into words or sounds. But we're literally being hit in the ear by the sound wave. That's a physical, a physical act. If we're going to be sitting and focusing on ourselves, whether it's reading a book, or taking psychedelics, and there's a lot of ambient sound hitting our ears, literally hitting, our body puts up shields in order to block out the sound so that we can focus. That's how some of us who unfortunately live in places where there's street noise are able to sleep at night. The body puts up the shield to allow us to sleep, but that shield isn't free. There's no such a thing as a free shield. We have to pay for that shield. And how do we pay for it? With energy, because it's an energy shield that we put up to block out that noise, that siren from the street. That energy that we're using for the shield is energy that we could be using on ourselves for our immune system, our healing, or for the inner psychedelic experience. So you need to have a guide a person who takes care of the environment for you. If you take this in your home and it's quiet, that person makes certain you don't have to deal with telephone calls. If anybody comes to the door, they take care of that. You don't talk to people. You're, you're in, a, in a totally isolated situation where you deal with your inner self. You don't deal with the real world, with the postman who comes to deliver a letter with anything, with a leaky faucet. You don't, the, the other person takes care of all of that because you don't want to be doing that if you're going to really maximize the benefit of a psychedelic. And I'm going to build that into my answer to your question about what, what it's like. So we're talking safety, quiet. Nature is a great place to do it, in the woods or on the beach. But again, with a guide, if you're out in the woods, you don't want to be dealing with a bear. So the, you know, the guide will take care of that. Maybe not such a problem in the UK. <laughs> exactly. But out on a beach. But in, in nature, in quiet, safe setting. Second, set. You mentioned set and setting. There are three keys to the psychedelic experience. The set, the setting, and a guide. The set is your mental set 
as you go into the experience. You want to go into the experience knowing what you're looking for. Why am I doing this? This isn't the same as sitting around on a Saturday morning and saying, okay, let's all, quote, do drugs. This is, I'm taking this medicine for a purpose. There's something I want to learn about myself or some fears that I want to conquer or some anxiety I want to deal with or depression or something that I want to get to the root of. So I have a set and, and your attitude is important. You don't want to go into it in a bad mood and a depressed mood. You're liable to exacerbate it. If you're going to do that kind of work, then your guide better be a professional, a doctor like you two, not just a quote, a babysitter. There are certain people in certain circumstances where you can use quote, a babysitter guy, but there are others where you don't want to, where you want a th psychotherapist. And that's very important. Okay. Now we're going to get back to the, get to the question of what is the experience like? Now, I told you about the experience with MDMA, where it's totally conversational, took it at 9, 10, started the therapy session 10 to 12, very conversational, very interactional, open, able to go within, able to relate. Now we switch over to LSD, completely different type of experience. LSD, if you take a, a a full dose for an inner experience, we're talking about at least 250 micrograms. 250 micrograms, person who takes it, again, in this ultra safe place and comfortable, either laying down or in a very comfortable chair. Most often wearing blindfolds, possibly wearing earphones. The earphones are for two reasons. If you wear them, you could wear plugs. They're to block out amb any ambient sound. And some people use music to play into the earphones. One of my great teachers, Dr. Leo Zeff, there's a book written about him called The Secret Chief. It's a great book. He always used earphones. There is an issue with earphones because we're highly suggestible under the influence of these psychedelics. And so what the music that you select is going to influence the experience. Leo always used Beethoven. Well, Beethoven is very, is, <laughs> Beethoven can be very intense. And I can remember, I can remember taking LSD and, you know, Leo put, you know, you know channeled in Beethoven. And all I could focus on, instead of getting into my inner life where I wanted to go and check out the recesses of my consciousness, all I could focus on is the incredible discipline and brilliance of this Beethoven who was able to put all these different pieces together all at once. And I, I was mm. just awed. And I was like laying there just awed watching in my mind, the different people play. So I, it was an interesting experience until I said to Leo, hey, Leo, I got to get out of this and get into me. I'm totally, I'm getting obsessed with Beethoven here. <laughs> so uh, some people use music, some don't. Uh, I prefer, I, I, I would say that's up to the doctor. Um, but the, um, the eye shades are important because the LSD experience 
is it very large in terms of changes of the way we see the world. It, the, it's really a paradigm change. And I'll go into some detail about that. It's a paradigm change in the way we see the world looking out, but it's also as much of that change as the way we see the inside going in. And if you're using this material as a medicine, it's not necessarily to make the clouds look like ballet dancers, which can easily happen with LSD. That's very enjoyable, but it's not necessarily therapeutic unless you want to define therapeutic as having an enjoyable experience. If you go that way with that definition, well, yes, of course. And then you can see the trees as modern dancers and the clouds as ballet dancers and, uh, and, and various other perceptual things, including watching my Persian rug uh, turn into uh, a total movement. I'll give you a few examples. With, with LSD, I, I literally, it, 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 it subjectively seems to me that I can see the atoms moving in what we call solid things. Because from a very theoretical conceptual basis, there is no such thing as a solid. You know, this desk that I'm sitting at is not really solid. It's really trillions of atoms stuck together, and there really are little tiny spaces in between them. And that's why if I hit it with a cleaver, it comes apart because of those spaces. Well, under LSD, I can see the spaces. I can actually see movement in what we consider to be non-movable structures. I can look at a carpet and it appears that it's moving, that all the strands that are woven together are moving the way water moves. I can look at, I can look at my arm and it appears to me that I can see the blood moving through my veins. I'm not saying I can see them, but I'm saying subjectively the experience is that I can see them. So there's that going on with LSD in the visuals. And these visuals are fascinating. But as I said before, they're not necessarily psychotherapeutic. But psychotherapeutic is to put on the eye shades. So then the entire experience with these unusual perceptions is of the inner landscape. And that's where the action is for me. The action is taking these, these medicines, the LSD in this case, and looking at that inner landscape and then looking wherever I want to look mm -hmm. at my own psychology. So, for example, one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, uh, with, with LSD is what I call um, search and conquer missions. I go inside and I search for fear. What am I afraid of in this world? What can I find out about what I'm afraid of? And then I look, I take on the fears one at a time. And I go deep into the root of the fear and look for ways to heal it and to teach myself to be unafraid. And so by doing that and addressing the fears and looking for them, 
I can get a sense of mastery. Whereas in daily life, fears might affect me. They might push me to behave in a certain way. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm afraid of it without knowing deeply what it is that I'm afraid of. And so to the extent that I have fears in the recesses of my consciousness in daily life, I'm walking around with a series of Damocles swords. At any moment, any of these fears could pop out and do me damage, scare me, inhibit me, stop me from doing something. If I take them on one at a time, methodically, and heal them, literally erase them, I come out with a sense of mastery and confidence, and my Damocles shield, my Damocles sword box is shrinks, it's reduced more and more. By using this tactic, what is called a bad trip that you've heard about, is the best possible trip if you have the right person guiding you. A bad trip is the best possible trip. Why? Because you get to confront that which is the most scary to you. And that which is the most scary is liable to have the most impact on daily life. So if I get into it in a psychedelic experience and the worst possible fear I have to deal with openly and I deal with it and I come to grips with it and I make peace with it. Then after the experience and I have go through a, some hours and time of integration, I'm not, I'm no longer walking around in the world with that fear. And I could give you examples, if you want, in my own life of, 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 of exactly, you know, what I'm talking about. So that's an, an answer, I hope, to, uh, to your question of, of what the experience of, is like. That's one essential component of what the experience can be like, which is psychotherapeutically healing fear. And I and I and the and the the uh, the same thing can be done with what we call depression. The same thing can be done with what we call anxiety. And you know, right down the list, it's a matter of of getting to the root. And the psychedelic medicine facilitates going inside and getting to the root. Now, what we don't know, but we I hope we're going to learn is what happens if you take an equal number of people, put them in the same setting, give them the same eye shades, and have them sit there for eight hours without taking anything, or you give them a placebo, and you give them you know, directions as to conquering fear. It could be that a great, <laughs> we don't know what we're gonna find, but I'd sure like to know. Because you can see it. That's why we need the research. That's why we need we the need, research. We need it. Exactly. Dr. Miller, I think we're running out of time, but I still have so many questions that I want to ask you. We haven't even covered the fourth um, psychedelic in the book. Um, but thank you so much for, for, for speaking to me today. I really appreciate it. It's fascinating. And I think it's really important that we, we speak about these things. Because like I said, 
I didn't know um, anything really about the therapeutic um, potential to the drugs that we've discussed today or the psychedelics that we've discussed today. Um, and that's someone, and I am someone that's in psychiatry. So, so thank you so much. Um, I'll just uh, just ask Alex: Is there anything else that you'd like to ask before we before we finish? Uh, I think, like Rebecca, I have a million questions. If you would <laughs> just humor me with one question, uh, one of the kinds of therapy I'm studying is Gestalt, and uh, I'd love to know more. What was what was Fritz Perls like in person? First, let me say. You're very welcome for your gratitude. It's, it's a pleasure. It's a special pleasure. Uh, Fritz Perls, what was he like? He was, um, he was shunned by Freud. Uh, Freud sent him to South Africa to set up a psychoanalytic institute in South Africa. That was like sending somebody to Siberia in Russia. You know, it, it was like, he was a pain in the butt to Freud. He, he's so outspoken and difficult. So he, the story that Fritz told me was he goes to South Africa. He sets up a psychoanalytic institute. He goes all the way back to Vienna to report to Freud on his good work. And Freud declined to even meet with him. He carried that, that, that experience his entire life. He was a pretty grumpy guy. He was not easy to get along with. He was not easy to like. And um, he was technically excellent. And what he brought to the world that I think is most important, and this is what he should be remembered for rather than his grumpy, you know, sort of Germanic uh, personality. He, what he brought to the world was a, um, a rejuvenation of psychodrama as an important psychotherapeutic tactic. It's not that he invented psychodrama. Psychodrama came out of theater. It came out of theater in New York City and psychodrama also came out of, out of um, a treatment for tuberculosis because in the TB sanitariums in the Southwest of the United States where the air was dry, somebody figured out that if you met with TB patients in groups and they talked to each other in groups, it was beneficial. It was also cost effective. So there was a coming together of New York early uh, theater, Viola Spolin, the Kazans, the Actors Studio, and some work of some people in Jersey, and the TB Sands and group therapy sort of came out of psychodrama, uh, you know, the drama from the theater. But what Fritz did was developed this, this uh, tactic where you projected a part of yourself onto an empty chair and then you move back and forth between the two, two parts of your conflict, what he called the top dog and the underdog, the part of you that's critical and the part of you that's always defending. And you can do this with, with various parts of your personality by uh, creating the psychodrama. I, it's a powerful tactic. I think that's the most important thing that came out of Gestalt. I don't think the theory, you know, really went anywhere and the stock in the theory isn't very high, but that's a tactic that's worth learning and worth the therapist using because it's, 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 it's more powerful in a way for a person to talk to themselves out loud 
than than to go back and forth with the therapist because therapists bring so much into the picture ourselves of our own subjective experience. I mean, we do the best we can with it, of course, but it's still us. Whereas the patient talking to themselves is pure them and nothing more. And then that same tactic can be brought into the psychedelic experience by going within, listening to those inner voices, and then projecting them out loud. And a particularly powerful technique that we developed back in the 1960s is to video the patient having a dialogue with themselves out loud and then allow them to take that video home and watch it because there are certain things that they can see of themselves by watching that video that are extremely therapeutic. An example in my own case, when I watched the video early on back in the 60s, was a little smirk that I had on my face. And I don't think any therapist would ever have gotten across the, um, the meaning and the importance of that little smirk. But when I saw it on the screen, I knew exactly that it was a defense and it was a way of protecting and it was a way of not saying what was really going on because I was covering it up with this little smirk, which is a way of saying, you can't get to me because I'm, you know, I've got this little, this little shield of a smirk going on. And that was from the video that was so important. So I hope that uh, answers your question. And in terms of having more to say, let's do it again. <laughs> you are listening to a Maudsley Learning Podcast.